Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you Art Monthly's talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm speaking fairly slowly. I try to do this because I tend to speak very fast. I'm afraid you can't ask me to speak slower where you are, but Morgan and Dave can tell me to slow down, which they may well do. I am in the studio, therefore, as you heard, with Morgan Quaintance and Dave Beach, who've both written features, and they are in the issue of Art Monthly, which is number 370 and is the October issue. It's crammed, packed with other things too, but I have selected them both, and they very kindly agreed to come on and try to teach me and um, teach you. That doesn't mean... I don't mean that patronising. I mean, genuinely, get across to us verbally what they've written, both of which are fairly what I would call dense texts, not academic in that sense, necessarily in the dry sense, but they're definitely trying to say something quite complicated. I've read them both twice, and... I am not struggling, but I'm definitely uh, looking forward to being expand- them to be expanded upon a bit more. Um, now, Morgan, we're going to begin with you. Yeah. Um, not for any particular reason, really, but we think there probably is a link at, towards the end of your piece or where, you're, where yours is aiming towards um, with Dave's, and we'll, we'll make that crossover at some point. But obviously Dave's going to come in and ask some questions as well during, yeah. hopefully. And um, I shall now begin by trying to give a tiny bit of an intro about what it is about. It's called, in the magazine, post-racialism, which I don't think you called it that. I think you called it Beyond Identity Constructs, yeah. which is our subheading, More Acquaintance Looks Beyond Identity Constructs. And, and implied in that, to me, is that this idea that there's a you are re... You're looking again, really, at a whole load of... Um, a situation, in a sense, and a history which has gone on, and you're now looking at it from a new position as a, a younger, um, and I'm going to. This is what I'm going to do throughout the whole program. Right? I'm yeah. going to say something. I'm going to say, "Is that okay?" Because I'm being white middle class man, <laughs> genuinely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm <clears throat> nervous of, of saying wrong things. Yeah, you sure. Are, yeah, you are. what I think is known as a black man. <laughs> <laughs> but correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but, but this is uh, the subject that we're talking about in a way. Yes, uh, it is. Uh, yeah. And identity <laughs> and cultural positioning by people like me and I don't, I don't want to do that to you I want you to do it and well, I think okay. you want to do it okay. yourself okay let me just jump in say yes, you thank from, God for that from the, the, the <laughs> vortex you're falling into there but yeah, sorry like, sorry basically um to to bring to start it from a kind of personal perspective which is which I really want you to do I yeah that's, that's great from a personal perspective it was just um I was interested in tackling this topic of identity constructs uh because um I had sort of identified uh, this system of black identity as something that I stood um, outside of. Now, I think traditionally people associate that kind of um, sensation or that kind of awareness uh, with um, the fact that, say, for instance, I'm mixed race. So me being mixed race, the kind of traditional biased, uh, the traditional sort of position of ignorance when... um, uh, considering somebody who's mixed race is that well perhaps they're confused about who they are and maybe in an art sense they'd be interested in or obsessed with liminality like proving that you know in between things is where it's all at and that's not necessarily where I came where I'm coming from you see because 
I think my my um, positions do with systems and, and acknowledging that they exist and acknowledging that they are constructs necessarily comes from being inside and outside a number of different um, uh, spheres. So being working class in, in, in some capacities, being middle class in other capacities, being well educated in some places, not being so well educated in other places. And um, the more you sort of uh, buttress between these separate um, uh, systems, in, in some of which you're, you're seen to be a member of and others you're seen to be a misfit from, you, you, you suddenly start to think, well, I did anyway. That, Oh, hang on a minute. These are, you know, I can't be identified by any of these things. They're all extraneous to who I am. The only thing that's a constant in, in throughout is this is my own consciousness is the fact that I am a kind of central intelligence and um, tacked onto this central intelligence are a series of events and uh, emotional experiences that are unique to who I am as a person. Everything else is sort of extraneously put onto me, whether it's uh, colour, uh, sexuality, uh, or various sort of group affiliations. These are issues, these are problems for other people and not necessarily for myself. To put it simply, when I wake up in the morning, you know, I'm not black, I'm not middle class, I'm not working class, I'm not well-educated. I'm just a consciousness who's sort of struggling towards the bathroom to get ready for the day. And so bringing this to bear on an analysis of black identity, I was like, well, hang on a minute. Um, there's a number of different assertions within this idea of black identity that I don't necessarily agree with. Um and it's, rather than run those down at the moment, what I wanted to do was just say maybe it's best to let's let's interrogate um, uh, let's interrogate uh, this this sort of history of representation um, and see what uh, this history of representation has missed. Um, and what I mean by history of representation, I suppose, in the article, um, I'm talking about like um, uh, yeah, okay, so. If we talk about the 20th century and we talk about uh, marginalised um, uh, ethnic groups or, or, or others, um, then there's there's a kind of um, a system whereby they're battling for representation, they're battling for equal rights. So initially it's about equal rights and then it becomes about representation. So initially it's about being accepted as human beings and being able to have jobs and things like that. And then it becomes about... Oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, we've got jobs, but we're not in control of who we are or, or how we're perceived or our own legacy image, our own legacy as represented through images. Um, and what I was interested in is in, is in this sort of second, um, this this second impulse to control representation, uh, to wrest representation um, away from, uh, let's say what people have identified as a kind of uh, white patriarchal society to wrest it away from that and to control it themselves. And in so doing, I felt as if that these new identities that have been self-authored have become, what uh, were liberatory for some other people have become sort of albatrosses for others. So for me, perhaps in certain circumstances, it may be uh, sort of a priori that, I'm going to be interested in certain topics or ideas simply because um, of the colour of my skin, which means that I am affiliated with a specific group whose identities have been uh, designated by this second group who were battling for control of their own representation. And uh, so I wanted to say that perhaps now maybe uh, these have become a straitjacket 
uh, for people and to analyze um, what has been missed uh, by, let's say, the second post-colonial group uh, who have um, made these uh, sort of watertight representations. What have they missed while they've been focused on trying to um, battle for these representations to be accepted into arts institutions and uh, say onto panel debates or within the sphere of the art world. Just, just to, that, that's very clear. I, I think. Okay. Well, I think no. But it, it, what would be perhaps helpful is if you then said, "What's an example of, of this second um, colonial generation? An, an artist? Are you, is that what you're thinking about?" Yeah. Okay. So, the first post-colonial gener first post-colonial generation perhaps would be someone like Frank Bowling or Horace Ove. Uh, or Aubrey, Aubrey Williams, uh, the, a set of artists, I think, who were mainly interested in... in I, I can't speak for Horace Ove, but I certainly know that um, Aubrey Williams found it difficult to be taken seriously as a kind of modernist artist uh, or not. It's working within the, the, the sort of... Um, uh, the, the aftermath of modernism. Uh, and people like Rashida Reen as well, who was a minimalist artist, who found it difficult to be taken seriously as a minimalist artist and not exoticized uh, as, as as someone from you know, a, a, well, and not exoticized basically. Um, and I'd say the second post-colonial generation would be people who emerged in the the, the, the 1980s and who kind of came out of uh, Stuart Stuart Hall's. Um, uh, inauguration of cultural studies in Birmingham and so you have people like a, who seem to sort of come through in collective so you've got um, Black Audio Film Collective uh, Sankofa Films and the Black Art Group and uh, for these people they're kind of quite political and they're they're sort of um, uh, again sort of agitating for representation but also uh, within, within uh, this group it's kind of like um, Authoring history, so sometimes when you see uh, work, um, it might it might be quite. A, uh, there's a lot of sort of vernacular language to do with the Caribbean. There's a lot of um, uh, reference to the legacy of slavery, um, and there's a lot of reference to um, prejudice and segregation in one shape or the other. Um, and there's also reference to kind of uh, key texts. And uh, key events like Harlem Renaissance, um, uh, Franz Fanon, um, and then yeah. So that that was that was basically what I. Are you yeah. talking about people like um, Isaac Julian, Sonia Boyce? Yes, that, that I am group. talking about those Mark Seeley, Lubaina, him. Just to say, Keith Piper. That those those were the people within those groups. Yes, who, who some of whom remain and still exhibit quite a lot. Still now, exhibit quite they? a lot. Yeah, and and and. Um, I mean, Rashid also became the editor of Third Text. Yeah, well, didn't, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, they're all still making work more or less, and they're all still active, and um, yeah, so I'd probably say that those artists, yeah, you can identify them as a second post-colonial generation. Yeah, I didn't mean to stop. I've, what I've done is I've slightly stopped your wonderful flow. No, no, it's thank, but, but thanks for doing that. Presumably, presumably I, there's a third generation. Well, basically, I, I see. See, in a way, this is a construct as well. This notion of generations. Yeah. it was just it was just an easy model for me to sort of advance the thesis that I was trying to get towards. So, by, which, which is basically saying that this second post-colonial generation 
have done great things. You know, they they, they helped to um, found Innovo, which is the Institute of International Visual uh, Visual Art. Art. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, possibly because of what they were doing, a lot of um, uh, black and minority ethnic artists are being sort of seriously considered. And, and maybe you know, we should look at Chris Ophelia and Steve McQueen as somehow uh, a product of of uh, their sort of agitatory agitatory activities. Um, but what you mean, do you mean like say their their position as standard in almost in a sense standard commercial artists within this within the culture? They they're, the fact that they can be that is almost based on this well, work yeah. work by the previous yes okay, generation. Yeah. Is that's, that, is that, that, that's what I'm saying. Pos- yes, yeah, sort of notionally, you know. It, it seems like one thing could follow the other. I'm not saying it does, but, you know, you, you could see how that might be the case. Yeah. Um, and I'm saying the third generation is simply people who, who I guess, were born, uh, who, weren't, who didn't come of age during the 80s and they didn't come of age during the 90s, but more or less came of critical age during towards the end of the 90s and have come, you know, throughout the noughties and now. Um, is that you? Yeah, I guess it is me. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I, and I, I'm sort of, I'm quite old. You know, I'm 34, God, and so, <laughs> so like, I really, I'm sort of uh, um, at the far end of this. But basically, it's it just, I, I think, yeah. So basically, as somebody who wasn't uh, personally involved in these struggles and doesn't have uh, an emotional involvement in them, I just feel like best place to be able to stand outside of it and analyze it and say well where are the failings in this because and you it, do think there are some yeah I mean, yeah that, absolutely. I mean, that, that's really where we should be going isn't it because yeah. like, what what do you think are the failings well i think just some of the failings uh with the group is that they sort of took their eye off off of what was happening really um and uh and it's it's um and what what I mean by that is it's almost that's to put it politely, but to put it less politely, I think that a lot of people found success and a lot of people found royal honours and they just stopped agitating and they stopped really caring about what was going on. So it almost seemed like when people were agitating for representation for uh, you know blacks or Afro Caribbeans, uh, once they uh, found um, a certain amount of success, then they stopped doing that. One person in particular, probably Isaac Julian, I can name a, a few other people, but. I don't really want to do that, but it's this, like, this notion of like um, uh, climbing up the ladder and then pulling it up behind you. And that's all good. You can do whatever you want. But in doing that, they took their eye off what was happening. And I think that the, the next step from um, offering your own representations and critiquing those of the sort of uh, white male patriarchy is to then look at yourself and yeah, say, do well, the same to yourself. Yeah, what's happening here? And it, I just got this quote here by a um, sort of radical black feminist author called Bell Hooks. And this is what I've noticed, a tendency I noticed by attending a sort of um, a talks and symposiums organised by people who are affiliated with these sorts of uh, these groups. The second generation. The second generation. And it's this, uh, what she says is this. Marginalised groups often fear that dissent, especially if it is expressed in public critique, will play into the hands of dominating forces and undermine support for progressive causes. And this is something I come against again and again. And as someone is saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, what does this black identity mean? What do you mean by that? And uh, you, you, you just, just notice that this debate seems to shut down, really. You mean you mean there's a kind of presumption about what things mean? Well, no, I just I just mean that, um, uh, for instance, 
to say that perhaps when you go to a, 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 a maybe you can go to a conference and you're having a like okay for instance like there was a conference I went to um, a few weeks ago organised by the Tate Youth Program uh, to do with uh, technology uh, um, uh, something else and power in relation to. Uh, a group of exhibitions, uh, two by uh, African artists, one called Ibrahim El Salahi, one by Meshat Gaba, and an, an exhibition by an artist called Ellen Gallagher. And uh, a lot of the discussion of the day seemed to be taken up with the notion of diaspora, and which is to do with uh, displaced people, people who feel displaced from their homeland, wherever that may be. I think the term was originally used to refer to the Jewish diaspora, but through post-colonial critique now, it's referred to a lot for people from the former colonies. And what basically, uh, for British colonies, and basically what was happening on the day was this, was what was, um, I felt uh, this preoccupation with sort of an anachronistic debate, really, is that people like myself don't necessarily feel displaced. This is my home. I've actually been to Africa. I've been to the Caribbean. Neither of those places feel like my home to me. And... Um, I raised these issues uh, and were both and was shut down by Diane Abbott, who's who's uh, who's the first black MP, female MP in, in the Labour Party, and the artist in Kashanobare. Uh, both found m my um, assertion that well, actually, I don't feel displaced, and maybe a lot of people who are of colour don't feel displaced anymore. So maybe we should move the debate on. Seemed to feel that that was kind of threatening. And also, one of the things that I mentioned on the day was that um, this idea of um, uh, an innate identity that somehow I'd have a, a connection to Africa because of my lineage. Um, and I, I questioned that debate because I said, well, I'm mixed race and, you know, my, my grandfather was from Leeds and worked in the mines. So should I feel some affinity for miners when I go to Leeds and want to go down in the mines? And, and I spoke to Diane Abbott afterwards and she was actually... It's, it's quite shocking how ignorant she was and how and sort, sort no, of it's not actually yeah yeah sort of how vehemently against she was me bringing this up she was like yeah, you know you're mixed race issues and I think it, it just heightened for me yeah this idea that you know if you're in the group if you're if you're a, a black person then you automatically should accept these debates and ideas and not question them and I was just saying I, I just feel like um it shouldn't be co-opted uh, by a, a party who is sort of guarding the parameters of the debate. It should be able to move forward. And I think move away from being a racial specific debate. And it should also, um, it, it should just, everybody should be able to to to, to, um, to speak. M me saying that doesn't mean that we should do away with um, battling for representations and enfranchisement um, uh, in in society and sort of like... Um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, similar to feminism, uh, there should be a, a number of different waves and or a number of different fronts in which people are doing uh, work that will sort of help whatever cause. And um, I just think that the debate of um, multiculturalism and diversity is sort of frozen and is not really allowing this... this you mentioned Saeed, Saeed, don't you? Um, yes, what, yeah, what, yeah. What, what, was that, did he help you construct this, I, I mean, or I mean, where does he lie in your... Well, no, to be honest, like, uh, the, most, no, he doesn't, he hasn't really helped me to formalise. This is just a personal response to a, a state of affairs. That Usually I, the best, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that I've sort of witnessed, and... Um, and it, it went right back to a discussion I had. There's a commercial gallery called Carol Fletcher and they organised a debate around identity. And 
it, at the point, and I got up and, and I, I read this quote from an author called Edward St. Orbin, which was about identity. Perhaps it wasn't something that was watertight and that it was all we can say we are is, are a form of intelligence and a form of in, essential intelligence through which events, states of affairs and um, uh, emotional states happen to and that those things are unique to you and that's what makes you you. Um, okay, I'm going to bring Dave Beach <laughs> in now. Dave, what do you think about that last well, point? Well, one of the things that struck me in the in the article as I read it, because I, I, you know, I've only read it once, so uh, I'm not entirely on top of it. But um, there, it's you seem to call into question the 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 continued validity of uh, issues around uh, inclusion and exclusion, mm. as if maybe that's the wrong. Um, Opposition, yeah, for thinking through issues to do with race. Yeah, well, no, I, I, yeah, I, I can see how you would think that because um, I'm sort of saying that inclusion, and you know, if you just keep focusing on that, it's more like saying it's not invalid. I think it's definitely valid, but it should be uh, in a, in attendance with that should be alongside this um, impulse to critique identity, really, this impulse to. Um, uh, to look at the representations that have been birthed by another group. So uh, I, I do definitely think inclusion and exclusion are valid, but it doesn't really, just by moving it on somewhere else, doesn't invalidate what's happened previously. It all still needs to be going on. But I think I think partly the inclusion, exclusion, freezing around that has enabled the art world to sort of step back and say, well, this isn't pertinent or interesting. If we well, the, at, the problem mm. there are two problems with the inclusion exclusion mm. distinction. One, one is that uh, it can just turn into a numbers game. So mm. you say, so long as there are X percent of you know black and coloured artists in exhibitions, then we have you know we can be signed off. Uh, so then that's got no uh, no. There's no question of quality in that. There's no question of of the content or or, or whether whether these numbers. Um, are actually uh, equal to the other numbers in a sense, um, but the other problem is that the the, the campaign for inclusion mm. assumes, it seems to me, the neutrality of that that you're going to be included into. So if you know, um, you know, that n- not long ago the BNP were forced to to say that they they have to accept members from all uh, all uh, races, and which is which is a fabulous law. But how effective is that actually going to be? Do you know what I mean? So who would? It, it's not a question of my inclusion or your inclusion in that party. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't think that inclusion in that party is going to solve the problems of that party. And, it, and we might say the same thing for the not not the not art in general, but of arts institutions as they stand right now. It's well, not I, about inclu- yeah, being I, included. I, yeah, I kind of agree and disagree with you in one way. I've, I've probably actually we probably. I probably no, I don't disagree. I agree with you wholeheartedly, but sort of want to elaborate on what you're saying because, in a way, I think the art world does need some just inclusion because it is it's horribly monocultural, and that, that I don't have a problem. I don't see. I don't have a problem chipping my shoulder about it being predominantly white or middle class or anything like that. I just think too much of one thing uh, is a bad thing, really, because. Really, what you want is variety uh, at the most base level. Variety is the spice of life, but it's also if you want different um, modes of approaching information, approaching critique. For instance, 
like way back in the day when it was still free to go to school, you could find, you know, people from working class backgrounds go into art school. In fact, that was the way people made it through. That's the way people discovered they could be, you know, electronic musicians like Dave Gethan from Depeche Mode. And what you don't have is you don't have this accidental irreverence that happens when you have people who come from outside of the system and are unable to question the system as outsiders, which is kind of what I'm doing in the article with this like, black identity thing. And you have a lot of people who are totally invested uh, like um, intellectually and kind of spiritually in the narrative of contemporary art and so don't want to rock the boat, which makes things stagnant and, and sort of pushes only one thing to the fore. So I would say that um, inclusion in a sense uh, I'm kind of for inclusion in the art world because if if it doesn't happen one way, I haven't seen it happening sort of organically in, in another way. An example of this is that I myself am a recipient of a kind of um, a positive discrimination program, which was the Inspire course, which was uh, run by the Royal College of Art and the Arts Council England, which was an MA designed to um, allow people from black and minority ethnic groups to take part in uh, um, a curatorial MA at the Royal College of Art, studying at the, the Royal College of Art and also uh, training at a gallery. Now, a lot of people see this as a kind of controversial exercise that we're going to be ghettoized and all these different things. But I actually think that two years for both of the people in my cohort and the people who are at the college was probably some of the most dynamic uh, learning that they will have come across because here was us butting against a lot of the things that um, people were taking for granted and also agitating in the college for things that we didn't think were right. Now, you know, I'm not too sure if positive... I don't know about positive discrimination as a kind of rule of thumb, uh, but I, I certainly... And I'm not too sure. I wasn't even. I was sort of ambivalent about the course, really. Um, but I have to say that I think the overall effect of us coming out of that 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 masters and going into the art world has been has been quite effective and as and as and has been um, quite interesting. I think. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a it's a difficult one. Well, the, the thing about positive discrimination is it 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 puts a, a kind of. Uh, it puts resources behind the political commitment, you know. So, so when I when I talk to uh, artists from the who who went to art college in the early nineteen sixties, artists like Terry Atkinson, about you know getting the chance to go to art college, and it was because they just introduced you know the possibility of getting grants, um, and he wouldn't have gone to art college without it. And if you don't put material resources behind your commitment to expanding education to those with ability rather than those with money, then it doesn't. Then then it's just a kind of paper exercise. Mm. So it, it seems to me that what, that what you're talking about there mm. is, is is you know a, a, a whole group of people have put, have put together uh, a kind of infrastructure for mm. making making this commitment real. But what, what what I get from what Morgan's saying is that there, which may link with Dave's piece, which is where that where where you say that people should be critical and and questioning and deconstructing the identity still, yeah, and carrying on that because within all this, it's fine saying we support you, come yeah, in, yeah, yeah. But and you said, well, when, when we were in there, we were butting up against them. Well, okay, you're butting up against them because you're probably asking awkward questions because you are mm. doing this breakdown and criticality you know you're really trying to carry on yeah. deconstructing w rather than just saying oh we can now be part of the, this art world yeah, which you absolutely. mentioned so and, and i think that's the i'll just that's where the sorry, seed sorry. that's where the seed of it comes from really is being part of this course and just feeling as if um having 
I, I think one of the things the art world loves to do is perform criticality and critique. The art world loves to say it's about critique, it's about criticality. And as soon as you criticise or as soon as you highlight a failing, um, I mean, criticality doesn't just mean highlighting failings, but I'm just saying as soon as you criticise a system, like, everybody goes into defence mode. And I would say that um, as much as I think the Inspire course was great for the students, I would say the faculty was pretty much a disaster. And I think um, that although there was a few good teachers there, there were some who were just like um, shouldn't have been teaching, had no business with students. Some of them openly um, didn't really like students. And I think I, I, I for one was like, I'm not going to be here and be thankful for being in this situation. I'm going to tell them what's wrong and if necessary, write about it. And I think um, that's that sort of goes back to the idea of like marginalised groups fearing dissent. And it's like um, if you're within this milieu sort of black identity then you're just supposed to keep quiet and not talk about the cracks not highlight the cracks but i think it's important and that's why i'm saying part of what they've missed is this thing uh, that i highlighted called the depoliticization of african-american culture and um and I, and I thought that was really really important to look at and to look at how that tied in with this, this idea of neoliberalism and this idea of like capital and well, that, that's that's really what I wanted yeah, you to bring up. That's yeah. exactly right because that does connect with days. Yeah, yeah. But but it but it, it's critical to analysing and 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 having an overview. I mean, you know, in a way, we, we we're we're you know we're choosing to talk about a subject which might be racialism, post-racialism, but it sits within many people would say a larger, bigger picture, which is capitalism. I mean, I, that's an argument you can have. Some people would say, well, you can't you know deal with one farm more than the other. But but I mean. I mean, that's you did bring that up in your in your piece when you were saying lots of people adopt these, capital, you know, black people have a, aspirations which are actually capitalist based yeah, yeah. and given to them and they don't even know it and they're not they they don't know their own identity really. Yeah, well, that that was what I took yeah, from your suggestion. I was well, basically, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily. I mean, what I try to do is not so much say that prescribe it's just for black people. No, it's just which, which of, I would agree. So me, yeah, me too. Me too. I, I, I just think it's like. It's one, especially when I was saying urban identity and urban identity really is a multicultural thing. And yeah. I was just sort of saying, what happens when people start to construct identities? Who is it for? Who does it benefit? And you can see that this, this sort of constructed urban identity, which took hold in the, in the late 90s and really was like sort of ossified in the noughties, it really benefits companies. It really benefits um uh, people who are making commodities that people aspire to. So you're, own. Are you saying that those companies are ultimately constructing people's identity? Is that what you mean? Well, I don't know. No, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's as direct as that, but no. I'm just saying that um, in some ways, these aren't. It's not like. Um, it's a quite a complicated thing, and it's it's almost like once you start going down the road of like neoliberalism and these in these in, in these sort of large, larger institutions who are controlling people's wants and desires, it, it starts to sound like sort of conspiracy theories. But actually, if you just plainly look at the way society is, is going, it's obvious that that is the reality, and it's not the paranoid reality. I mean, and I guess I guess when I was talking about um, the London riots, I was saying look, that's just an open example of how people's like intellectual lives have been narrowed so dramatically by the mainstream media or by what the the image system that they've been brought up on and fed and i just think um it's and I, and i think maybe perhaps this idea of like an urban identity is part of it i mean it's a, it's just part of a a set of tools 
um, that allow people to be controlled and allow people's desires and wants and uh, um, and fears to be modulated in tune with the kind of dominant ideology. And the dominant ideology is neoliberalism and capitalism. Yeah. So, and to understand what you just said, it, yeah. it, it is a, can then be applied, if you, once you understand that, to your own identity, whether you, whatever you are, and, and, and then you can begin to construct your own and take control of it once you understand what you said. Yeah, I think I think so. I, I think so. <laughs> I mean, without without it, but without it, you are going to be pressured all the time to be something else, and you're going to be fighting all the time, aren't you? I mean, mm. I'm not saying you can escape it. Yeah. That's a whole, as you say, another huge, massive argument. Well, not argument, but Dave, d- bringing you in on your your feature, um, you yours is called well in the magazine it says the art anomaly, but you're. Um, it says in, the, in the, the footer or in the description of what it is, Dave Beach on arts economic exceptionalism, which, on a reading of which I've crudely done, but would be that somehow art as a as a commodity or as an object or as a thing escapes. In other words, it's exceptional to the standard capitalist uh, productive produ- produced object. Is that? basically beginning somewhere where you're starting? I mean, uh, If you start with the object, then art doesn't seem to be exceptional. So you have to start with its mode of production or the social relations of production, really, which is to say that um, the capitalist mode of production has a capitalist who pays wages and buys raw materials and thereby owns the products and then sells them for profit. Um, th- that relationship doesn't exist for the most part, in art. You don't have a capitalist who employs people to make art and buys their raw materials and pays the, way, pays the rent of their studio. So we don't have that productive capitalist worker relationship in the production of art. So that already makes it exceptional right from the start. Right. I could, I, well, interesting, I just thought I'd mention this. What, what I'm doing with this article is very similar to what Morgan's doing in his, which is that I'm, I'm kind of... St- standing up against my own tradition. So my Marxist tradition uh, says that art, you know, like Adorno said, art isn't just uh, art which is then also commodified. He says it's commodified through and through. And so my Marxist tradition that I'm working through has assumed the exact opposite of what I'm saying. So So not only the neoliberals, but the Marxists as well, have always said... Uh, or at least since the 1920s, that art is a commodity like everything else. And then you get the neoliberals saying art is a commodity like everything else. And so what I've done is look into not how objects are exchanged for money, which is obviously the case, but whether art is produced as a commodity in the way that commodities are produced by capitalists. You're suggesting that it may be able to escape that definition. Well, I I think it's not even about escape, because it just doesn't correspond to that mode of production. Artists have not been subsumed by capital in the way that, uh, in the way that workers have, in the way that wage labourers have. So artists are not wage labourers. So, they're, so they don't, they're not alienated from their products and they're not alienated against the means of production. You know, like the, 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 one, of the, one of the fundamental things about capitalist production is that the, the worker doesn't own the things that they produce. Whereas if you, you know, if you think about um, you know, a pre-capitalist worker, a peasant or something, they own the, the product that they produce, but their surplus uh, that goes to the landowner is, is done often on a separate field 
you know, so they work for the for the landowner on another day, one day or two day two days a week or something like that, and they produce separately. But the what the, the 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 crops that they produce for themselves or the handicrafts that they produce for themselves are theirs, you know, and it's 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 actually historically quite because um, a lot of artists actually do that. They like I mean I am an artist and I work for Art Monthly three days a week and four days a week. I produce work which is mine yeah. <laughs> to sell yeah. or not sell, yeah. not sell usually. You know, and, and that's it. That is that does equate. Like, so I can feel that. Well, so that's that's a pre-capitalist uh, social relation, which is that you you are a, a free worker making your work, which you own, and you own the means of production too. You know, you own your own camera, and so on and so forth, which is uh, not typical of capitalist wage labourers. But what would you? I mean, that that kind of makes sense when. Morgan. That kind of makes sense when you're talking about uh, traditional modes of production, but how 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 would how would you apply that to immaterial labour, for instance? Especially if, say, somebody was an internet artist and uh, they were using tools that weren't their own. They were using tools uh, that were offered by another software company, and they were also uh, hosting their work in the cloud, which is owned by another company's server. So, in a sense, that that company could be saying. But because a lot of the way that labor, immaterial labor is uh, sort of managed on the web is sort of surreptitiously. So you, so let's say if you're making Facebook updates, you don't feel like you're involved in sort of wage labor because it's a free service, but you're actually like, you're making content for a company basically. So you, you are kind of engaged. You mean, in they, some... you mean they can sell adverts because you produce content yeah, you... which attracts the right advertiser to put something not, on, not that, only that, on but, that? Not only that, but yes, yeah, yeah. That the advert argument, but also you're just making their website more attractive for, for for advertisers, but also for visitors because you're it's like a blog, but it's a blog for Facebook or it's a blog for someone else, and you're it's not independent. Content. It's not, yeah, it's you, not independent, so it's not on the on a piece of land of his own. No, it's on a piece of land that's still owned by the landowner. Yeah, what we need to do is to look at the economic relations. I mean, if you say that that this is. Uh, they're working on something that's authored by somebody else, then that's not an economic relation. So, in other words, if a peasant is using a plough, they don't have to have invented the plough in order for it to be theirs. It's just that nobody else can take it off them. Do you know what I mean? So it's about that's about whether you own your own means of production. All right? Now, you don't have to be the author of that. It doesn't have to be your idea. You don't have to have a copyright of it either. It just happens to be yours. And in a lot of cases, you might have made it yourself or something like that. Now, in, 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 the, in, in artists that work on the web, um, you will probably own your own computer, but you won't have authored all of the software in it. And uh, you probably pay uh, a telephone company uh, rent to use it and so forth, like everybody else does. Consumers do it as well as producers. Um, so the key to it, is not about whether the the thing that you use to make your work, your means of production, is uh, is entirely yours because you know a lot of uh, a lot of tools for production are uh, common. Do you know what I mean? So so it's not about property ownership in that sense. It's about whether and what makes it capitalist is when a capitalist owns it and you're allowed to use it so long as they're paying your wages to use it. And that's not the case in Facebook. No one is paying me a wage to write my status updates in Facebook. 
But I think it, what it's essentially because we're talking about it in real concrete terms, aren't we? So, I mean, you could abstract it and say, well, maybe they are. <laughs> they're giving you some sort of uh, payment because uh, it may be to do with notoriety and prestige that you're getting from using their service. You can't pay your rent with that. No, no, you can't. But I mean, is that are we only going to be looking at art? If you're talking about capital, if you're talking about capital and you're talking about whether art is um, is exceptional to the capitalist mode of production, then you've got to follow the capital. But why, right, and, the, and the money that is made from something like Facebook is made entirely through advertising, just as it is with Art Monthly. All right. One of the one of the mistakes that people make about things like Facebook is that they say every time you click or every time you put up a status, you're making somebody money, which would be the equivalent of saying every time you turn over the page mm. in in Art Monthly, someone has got got themselves a quid, and it's just not the case. You don't get paid per page that's been turned over. What you do is you have statistics for the use of something, and advertisers pay varying rates depending on those statistics which is exactly the same as Art Monthly. So Art Monthly have got, you know, statistics about their, how many they sell every month and so forth, and that affects the, how much it costs you to, to put an advert in there. The same as billboards, which, which me and, uh, and my collaborators in the Free Art Collective use all the time. Different billboards cost, and different, cost different sites at different, different parts of town have different values, you know. So some of them are free because nobody wants them. And some of them are really, really expensive because everybody wants them. So what the world the M4 flyover costs a lot of money? Yeah, of course. But I just think if if this analysis is tied to, has to be tied to con to concrete um, entities. So we have to tie it to physical capital, and we have to tie it to kind of a kind of physical labour. Then how valid would it be as an an analysis of? It art? doesn't have to be physical labour. I mean, except that all labour is physical. Even immaterial labour is physical. It still transforms things in the world. Mm. Um, but, but I'm not talking about the production of objects or something like that. Yeah, but I just mean how can, we are, how, how can it be asserted that art is economically exceptional when I just think... I don't know much. I'm not an economist. And I'm not really an academic, so I'm sort of floundering a little bit here. But how, how can we argue for art's exceptionality when I think the nature of art at the moment is in such a state of flux and the nature of... Of, um... Because we've got to cut through, cut through all of the all of the appearances and say, what what is the actual fundamental characteristic of a capitalist economy, and identify what that is, and then say, is that how art is structured? That's how you cut through all of the. But you know, some people are very rich, or some people have become celebrities. You know, some the art market is very corrupt. There's lots of oligarchs involved, and all and so so we can follow the money if we want to, mm. or we can say. But what is it that is distinctive about capitalism? Okay, well, if you can, if if we agree that it is exceptional, what why what do we what do we do then? Okay, so we trying to does that mean well, okay, fine, we just carry on exactly as we are? Well, I think well, certainly not Marxists would carry on exactly as they've been going on. For they the, wouldn't absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, no. It would affect previous um, generational debates. Exactly, a, it, it creates it? a new generational debate. Yeah, w- w- right? which is maybe what you're trying to do now. I, I mean, absolutely, with your idea, what I'm trying to do. Well, now. fine, fine. But but what what, what well, would what, be the difference? Well, for, for what one thing is, if if people on the left understood that art is exceptionally uh, exceptional in its economics, then we wouldn't just hold our hands up 
and surrender when the neoliberals tell us artists are just businessmen like everybody else. They should pay for their education like everybody else. They should, uh, they should, if they can't sell their works, then they should quit, just like businessmen do, and so on and so forth. Okay, so if we if we think that art has already been utterly commodified and, and artists are just entrepreneurs like everybody else, then art should be run according to the market just like all other businesses should. With no excuses. Now, if, Mar- no excuses if Marxists basically. have been arguing... In fact, Marxists were arguing that art has been commodified before the neoliberals picked up on it. So Marxists, in a sense, made it easy for neoliberals to make this argument. But it also makes it very difficult for Marxists to resist the... You know, the, the closure of courses, the, the cuts to arts funding and so on and so forth, because Marxists have been saying so, all along so if, that if, it's already too late. If they use this argument, that means they can then have an argument because they've got a position which says we're not, you can't treat us the same way. Well, saying they would, they would then... What, uh, you're saying oh, it actually would be used as a way of finding a place where capitalism can't reach, is that...? Not necessarily, but I, but I think that if you don't have a capitalist telling you what to do in order to make them profit, which is very unusual, but if you are in that situation, then rather than being a, a kind of cynical commodity producer, which is a lot of artists are, ironically, despite the fact that they don't necessarily have to do that, um, then it gives you other options other than irony and cynicism. It means that you can say there are material conditions which allow me to do things that are independent and are not led by the market. But the thing is, I, I just think um, it's, it's difficult because some, in some ways when I'm thinking of economic exceptionality, I keep thinking of autonomy, you know, and I don't think art is sort of autonomously, autonomously out there on its own, I think. See, the problem with the concept of autonomy is it, is it expands in a very abstract way from the material conditions of artistic production, which are exceptional, as if that, that therefore means that artists are immune from capitalist society and from capitalist culture and from, you know, not only being artists but also from being, for being members of a society. You know, you, you, can't, be, you can't be autonomous. You can't, you can't not shop, you know. You can't, you can't cut yourself off from capitalism as a, as a human being. But you, that doesn't mean that you then have to say, well, in that case, art is no different from everything else. Art is produced just for the market, just like everything else. But the thing is, I don't think everything else is just produced for the market. For instance, if people make music, they don't just produce it for the market. There's, it's a sliding scale. Some people produce music for themselves and some people produce music for the market. And I think it's the same for art. So I think maybe some aspects of art may be economically exceptional in, in terms of the model you're talking about, but others aren't at all. Musician, musicians be. aren't wage labourers either. Well, look, and that's, that's why I'm not a Marxist, so I don't really. This is if we start going down that area, I'm not going to know how to discuss it with you. But I just think, um, you know, I just think. But I think that what's important. I mean, I'm an artist, so the the beginning of this debate about economic exceptionalism by me is going to be about artists. But there are lots of uh, people out there making things that are not wage labourers or doing things, and they're not wage labourers. So economic exceptionalism needs to be rolled out, really, and musicians and, and you know, you comedians. You mean broadened, broadened as far as possible to, to show, well, to show how many I, people actually escape what, it. What I, what I would like is, is, is for us to, on a case-by-case basis, is look at something and say, is that economically exceptional? And if we, if we can lay out what economic exceptionalism requires, then, then we can then apply it to other fields and we can say, oh, look, music is economically exceptional too, or some 
parts of the music industry. Where, where does self-employment self come into this? Does nowhere or <laughs> somewhere? Well, self-employment is a transitional uh, status. You know, <laughs> I feel it is. Because, <laughs> because, because you can be a self-employed worker, like a plumber, you know, but you can also be a self-employed uh, entrepreneur. So you can, so you have to go on, like I said, you have to go on a case by case basis and say, is this instance an instance of exceptionalism, or is it in fact just but what, that this person is now a capitalist? What would the case by case analysis yield? How how would that? What what would that do? Because I think on the on the one it, hand, it, well, on think, the one think hand, about, think about what you were saying about. Uh, being about the, the difficulties that mm. arise from the concept of black identity. Yeah. The concept of black identity is a universal concept, yeah. and, it and it appears to apply to all individuals regardless. All right? And what you argued for was, if you like, a case-by-case -case analysis of individuals that is, that is not already determined in advance by this concept, this general concept of black identity. And what I'm doing... Here is saying we know how capitalism works, we know what capitalism looks like, but we also need a case-by-case -case analysis of, of actual activities by actual people and say, is this an example of that great big thing or is it not? Is there something different about it that we need to pay attention to? But the thing is, the thing that I find difficult about that, that um, comparison is that if I'm saying, well, I as an individual... And I wasn't really saying, I was saying that, uh, not, not necessarily a concept, but more a construct. So um, the idea that this, this has been fabricated by somebody somewhere at some point for a specific reason. And that once you go in and analyse these different things that have been constructed, once you deconstruct the construction, it might enable you to look at it in a different way, in a different critical way. So it might yield more critical, uh, different results. It might enable you to... Um, sort of enter into different arenas of debate and it might enable you to make different types of artwork that are maybe more interesting uh, and sort of reinvigorate debate around what, multicultural when, diversity. When you say more interesting, when you say more interesting, I mean, do we mean more effective? And if you mean more effective, do we mean in at what? No, okay, so basically, in philosophy at the moment, right, there's this sort of sexy uh, uh, idea called object-orientated ontology. It's not that sexy. Now, a lot of people are kind of... Uh, basically, Graham Harmon and a few other people are arguing for uh, a sort of problematizing anthropocentrism in the world. So saying that man isn't the center of the universe. And he's not also saying that, um, uh, you know, that sort of maybe the wind, rocks and all these different things have a type of agency. Not that they're like uh, sentient and that they want, you know, that, that door doesn't want you to go through it. But it has some sort of agency now. You know, people can get really annoyed about it and say, oh, that's just ridiculous. There's another example of like ivory tower philosophy, philosophizing of no connection is rarefied. Or they can say, well, let's consider that. And what 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 do, what are some of the philosophical possibilities that this thing ye might yield? What might we be able to think about if we if we hypothesize that that might be the case? And so I think. That was a kind of long way of saying, you know, if you hypothesize that identity is a construct, it would enable you to make work like this guy, Dean Blunt, made, who I was talking well, about in the what, article. One of the problems but with what, the construct... If I could just finish, one, one of the things I'm thinking is how would, if you're saying that art is economically exceptional, it seems like quite a complex argument. So how... It's a complex what, what would it yield? It's a complex case, society. See, that's what I'm saying. A case-by-case -case analysis of... Uh, this just seems quite convoluted, and I wonder how... 
A case-by-case analysis is, is, yeah. is what we're used to in art. We want to judge artworks independently. We don't just want to generalise all the time. Oh, so it'd be, would it be, who would be doing it? Critic? Because I thought, is it no, policy it, or is it wh- why, why wouldn't Sorry. everybody do it? Well, because we don't have time. But the, I don't, I, don't <laughs> care, I don't care where you've got any time. The problem with the problem, the reason that, that it's interesting for you to talk about the construct of black identity mm. is is because what you what you're trying to do by by naming it that is to separate the construct from the reality. So, in other words, if you don't call it a construct, if you just call it black identity, then it's as if the world has already been described and we know what it looks like and we and, it, and it's real. It's a fact. Okay. It's a fact. It's a fact. And so by calling it a construct, what you say is there's, there's two things for us to consider here. There's the history of the ideas around black identity and there's the history of the actual lived experience of black people. All right. So you want to separate those out and then say, right, now on a case by case basis, we can we can bring them together and see whether they fit. And quite often we would expect them not to fit. And and. You can't do that except with a case-by-case analysis. You can't do it in general, because as soon as you do it in general, then you're back to another construct. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that if we, in the past, what we've done as Marxists and as neoliberals, we've just said, art is commodity production just like everything else. And so we've got this construct, in your terms, we've got this theory about how art relates to capitalism. And what I'm saying is if we treat that as a theory, not just as a description of reality, then that gives us the opportunity to say, how does that theory actually match up? Does a case-by-case analysis of artists and how they work actually match this very generic theory of how art relates to capitalism? And one one of the things that I'm trying to do is say, let's not actually start that debate by talking about art's relationship to capitalist society Let's start the analysis by looking at art's relationship to capital. Where does capital come in? All right. Now, in, in regular commodity production by, by capitalists through wage labour, the capital is, is up front. You know, the capital pays the wages. The capital is, the, is, is, in a sense, the thing that sets everything in motion. Now, in art, capital only enters into the whole circuit of art through the gallerist or the dealer. In other words, it's through that mode of display and exchange and distribution. There are no capitalists involved in any earlier part in the process. So it's already a different kind of uh, circuit of goods. That's just generally speaking, okay? If that's the case, then let's let's look at how different artists relate to that and let's look at, at, at how you're not in a position of a wage labourer who is being told what to do by a capitalist. And therefore, you have a certain amount of what we might call autonomy. Not, not complete autonomy from ideas and culture and everything else. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're now uh, isolated from the world in any way. But it does mean that you have a certain amount of uh, licence because you're not actually being told what to do. So it doesn't mean that, you know, the... The dealer or the gallerist doesn't come over to the studio because obviously they do. And, you know, you hear of cases where a, a dealer goes to a gallery, goes to a studio and they say to the artist, don't make any more of them. I can't sell them at all. But these other things that you're doing, I could sell a lot of them. If you do 20 more of those, we're, we're going to be fine. You know, so it's not that it, it doesn't have a kind of um, an effect, but, it's, but having someone say that to you 
is not the same as having a boss who's paying your wages saying, if you don't do this, then you're out the door, mate. It might be the same effect for some artists, though. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is where, because f- that's where reality cuts in. Because mm. if I, if someone says that to me and I know that's my income, and I am actually beginning to rely on that, get that deal for selling my stuff to survive and eat, or pay the rent to the studio or whatever, maybe make a profit, um, then I might bend to it. But I would agree that that is a particular specific example which I would be able to analyse myself in that position, having understood just, what just you're as saying. A, just as I would a, look at it slightly differently. Just as an illustration of uh, what we, like a rule of thumb for what economic exceptionalism might be or how we might picture it or think of it. In a, in a clear way. Think about political activists. Okay? If you're a political activist, no one's paying you to be a political activist. All right? You're a political activist for your own reasons. Okay? And you go out and you do it, and in, in bourgeois terms, it's voluntary. All right? It's not voluntary because it, it's, it's more you're, because you're it's compelled. Necess- it's necessary. Yeah, exactly. And you're not doing it for... For, those, so, for, the, so for that kind of, you know, that, that kind of social esteem that you would get uh, by, by working uh, for a charity or something like that. But you're, you're, you're doing it and you're not thinking about how am I going to profit from this? Where, how am I going to pay my wages? How am I going to pay my rent by doing this? You know, I, you, and no one's gone around demanding that political activism ought to be waged. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And rightly well, so. Know, it's, not, yeah. it's not that kind of activity. <laughs> well, because I, I, the problem I, arises... Julian Assange? But if, if, if political activism does become waged... Which, in some cases, we may find it has... Then it opens up the possibility of all kinds of corruption, doesn't it? Yeah, which, which we can find. I mean, there are examples of, of, of where these things break down. and that's. But I would say, if I understand what you're saying, we're getting very near the end of the programme. I'm not trying to sum it all up. Is that this understanding you're having is going to assist me in analysing my own experience on a day-to-day basis with different people. So when I come across somebody, I will smell the corruption if it's there because I've got an awareness of what you said. If I don't have any awareness of what you said, I'll think they're perfectly innocent people. I mean, I was involved in protests in the past and a man did come and I found myself to be very suspicious of him and I had a right to be at one by the time hmm. I found out later. There was corruption going on. Yeah. You know, it is, it is... But the specifics are... Interesting. The, the I mean, one what, case by case is is where I, I mean, I'd agree with that. What I want to do is is to just um, it's offer a new tool for thinking about how art interacts with capital that that doesn't just automatically um, assume that art is part of the normal system already. It doesn't mean that some of it. Or it doesn't mean that all of it isn't. I'm not. I'm not trying to say the opposite. I'm not trying to have another generic. Uh, theory, which is instead of saying that all art is commodity, I'm not trying to say no art could ever possibly be a commodity. I'm not trying to say the opposite. I'm just saying if we if we have these tools to analyse art's relationship to capital, then it allows us to make finer distinctions. OK, listen, I'm going to say a small thing, but thank you very much, Morgan Quaintance and Dave Beach, for coming in today and talking about these things. I've found it very interesting and I've learnt something. Um, I hope the listeners have too. Um, do do read this. No, no, it's a pleasure. As always, thanks, do, Mark, do, as usual. Do do read the features. I mean, there is much many more facts, and they're constructed in, with great care in, in the October Art Monthly issue number three seventy. You can subscribe to Art Monthly for twenty nine pounds only, which means it's dirt cheap because there's ten a year. So that's two pounds ninety a copy for. <gasps> oh my god! Which, which I'm going to subscribe. <laughs> which, as an object, 
<laughs> it's damn cheap, yeah. but it is capitalism. <laughs> no. Thank you ever so much for listening, and hopefully you'll come back and listen to us again next month. Goodbye. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Morgan. Thank you. Thank you.